Our passage that we will be looking at this morning is Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 14. Let's ask God's blessing upon the reading of His Word. And then for context, we'll read Daniel 1, Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, 1 through 14. Let's go to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we ask, O Lord, that You would make Your Word clear to us, that You would free us from distractions, that You would point our eyes, our minds, and our hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is He that we desire to see. It is the Lord Jesus that we need to see. We ask all of this in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Daniel, chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold... Another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed, and given over to be burnt with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. But their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him. And to Him was given dominion 
and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Thus far the reading of God's word. Here before us in Daniel chapter 9, verses 9 through 14, as I have said, the very center, the very heart of the book. This passage is perhaps the most important and significant for the book of Daniel. It could perhaps be the most important and significant in all of the Old Testament. It describes the rule of the Lord God, the ancient of days and the son of man. You may know that phrase, Son of Man, well, even if you've never studied the book of Daniel. It is our Lord Jesus Christ's favorite way, most preferred way, to refer to Himself. Over 70 times, our Lord Jesus Christ is called the Son of Man in the Gospels. And there are several clear references to this passage that we will look at. This is at the very heart of of a book that tells us how we can live as believers in the midst of a land that does not acknowledge God. It is this part of chapter 7 that steadied Daniel, and it will steady us as well. Let me remind you that this passage is written in Aramaic. It is written to be dispelled throughout all of the world. It is also the first of the visions that will come. There will be visions in chapter 8 and 9. But as we see in the first verse of this chapter, this is a vision that Daniel had in the very first year of Belshazzar. Now, this is not a coincidence that we are given this piece of information. Because Daniel had this vision of the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man before he had to stand before the emperor and say, You have been weighed and found wanting. He had this vision before he was threatened with a lion's den. This vision is what stabilized and steadied Daniel in the midst of fierce attacks. And it is my prayer that it will stabilize and steady us as well in these turbulent times. So let us look then at this passage and see three things. First, two people and one thing. First, the Ancient of Days. Who is the Ancient of Days? And what do we know about him from this text? And then secondly, we will see the judgment of God as it rolls out in this chapter. The Ancient of Days and the judgment of God. And then finally, we will see the Son of Man and see who He is in all of His glory. Let's begin then by looking at the Ancient of Days. Look at verse 9. Daniel introduces this again with vivid imagery. He says, As I looked... There were thrones being placed. You recall that we said before that this chapter is full of looking, watching, seeing. This is apocalyptic literature. It is the technicolor movie genre of the Bible. It is images laid before our eyes to remind us of what the world is really like. Because you see, so often our senses are dulled to what the world is really like. We look out and we think, evil is victorious. Crime does pay. It's beneficial to be lazy. Cheating and lying works. 
And our senses are dulled by all of the sin that is thrown against us in this world. And this type of literature reminds us of the rule and reign of God. Now, contrast this scene in verse 9 with the beginning of this chapter. In verse 9, the thrones are placed and the Ancient of Days is seated. Reminds us a bit of Revelation chapter 4, that scene you may recall. In that scene, John looked and looked into heaven and he saw a throne and one seated upon the throne. And there was jewels and there were gold and silver and a rainbow and there was a sea. And Do you remember what that sea was like? It was like glass. Have you ever been out on a lazy summer day and seen a lake in which there's not even a ripple from fish? You can see your reflection in it and the sun shines brilliantly off it. And you sit in a chair and you say, I don't ever want to leave. This is the most peaceful, restful thing I have ever experienced. That is what the throne room of God is like. All the more Striking when it is contrasted to the rise of the great powers of man, in which a great sea is churned up with large whitecaps and chopping waves and chaos. There's no chaos here. The ancient of days rules and all is calm. All is restful. All is perfect. It's like silent night, but forever. Can you imagine that? That's what the rule of the ancient of days is like. There is a great contrast. And as we look, Daniel begins to describe to us what this ancient of days is like. Now, again, this is literature that is figurative. It is perhaps the most exceedingly difficult thing to do to describe God using words. As a matter of fact, most of our descriptions of God are negative. God is immortal. He doesn't die. God is everywhere. He is without beginning, without end. Every time we try and think of a way to describe God, it is, it is a challenge because there are no boundaries for God. He is unlike us. Have you thought about trying to describe the Trinity and how a being could have more than one person? It's exceedingly difficult. And so Daniel gives us these word pictures. First, that he sees him and he is white as snow. His clothing is as white as snow. Now, this is difficult for anyone who's lived their entire life in Houston. I know once every three years we get a quarter of an inch. But that's not really the type of snow that's like this, because even that little bit of snow quickly becomes mixed with rain and with dirt and in the cars. This is the kind of snow that when you are up north in the country, far from a road, far from a car, far from exhaust, it's that kind of snow that comes down in big flakes in a forest. And you look out over that forest ground, and no one has run through it. No one's built a snowman. No deer have run through it. It's just completely, beautifully bright and white. It's the kind of snow you can't look at for more than 10 or 15 seconds because your eyes get blinded. That is the only way that Daniel can think to describe the great holiness, purity, brightness, and splendor of God. He has to draw this analogy. This is the ancient of days. 
Is this what you see when you think about the Lord God? Do you think about a pail that you throw your arm around and joke with and nudge in the ribs? Do you think about a kind grandfather? Do you think about a formal butler or servant? Or do you think about one who is so bright in his purity that you cannot take your eyes from him, but your eyes cannot stay on him because they are not able to? This is the purity of the ancient days. He is white as snow and he has hair as pure as wool. Now, this refers to the ancientness of God. There is a sense in which the hair being described as white wool or grayish white wool leads us to think about the ancientness of a person. But this is different with God. It is an ancientness without beginning. It is an ancientness without end. It is age without weakness. I know many of us, most of us over the age of 25, wish that we had all of the wisdom, all of the authority, all of the blessing of age without its attendant weakness. The joints that creak. The cough that comes. The feet that are unsteady. You see, with us, ancientness comes to mean not only wisdom and authority, but it carries a level of weakness with it. Physical infirmity. Not so with God. You see, God is the ancient of days, but he is as strong as ever. He will be swayed by none. And this contrasts with the fleeting nature of human governments, the fleeting nature of these beasts. He is white as snow, with hair pure as wool. This description of God is nearly identical with the description of another person, In Revelation chapter 1, one who is as white as snow, who blazes and burns, who has feet as bronze, who is so awesome to look upon that John cannot help but fall down as dead. That person is the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the description of the ancient of days and the description of the Lord Jesus Christ are similar for a reason. John was well steeped in the book of Daniel. There are many, many parallels, as we shall see from week to week. But we see here, the main thing is these descriptions are both being given because both the readers of Daniel and the readers of Revelation are facing the same sorts of issues. They're asking the same questions. If God's in control, how come wickedness triumphs? If the church is triumphant, how come we are persecuted and abused? If life is to be good as a child of God, why am I sick? And you see, both Daniel and John answer by showing the glory of God. By taking us up out of our sin, up out of our trials, up out of our difficulties, and pointing us to the one who is able. This is the character of the ancient of days. But we we see not only his character, we see also... His power. Look here again at verse 9. As he looked, Daniel looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. The Ancient of Days has a throne, has authority, has power. His throne was as fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. Now, the Ancient of Days takes his seat in the midst of all of this swirling mess of the beasts. Now, have you ever noticed someone to be calm 
in the midst of a crisis. Things are going. People are running to and fro. And they're sitting. They're collected. One of two things is true here. Either the person is completely out of it and has given up, sort of fiddling while Rome burns or sipping champagne while the Titanic goes down. Or they are calm and collected because they are completely in control of the situation. They have nothing to fear. They know exactly where the authority lies. They are in control. That is the case here with the Ancient of Days. He takes his seat because none of this catches him by surprise. Beast after beast can come up out of the sea and none of it surprises him. He is exactly and completely in control. There is no need for a feverish amount of activity. God will act at exactly the right time and do exactly the right thing. He is calm, cool, and collected in all of the best sense of that. He is in complete control. Now, as an aside, I think often we can take a lesson from this. Because you see, often we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we see a crisis, we see a difficulty, and the first thing that we want to do is to spring into feverish action. We hear someone who's going through a difficult time in their marriage, and rather than sit with them, weep with them, put an arm around them, we try and find out what we can bake, what we can fix around the house, can we watch the kids, what can we do, all of which are good things. But you see, we need to know that God is in control and take a lesson from that, that he is in charge of his church, which includes this church. And so if we have concerns about whether our youth will leave the church, we leave it in God's hands. We don't run around like chickens with our heads cut off. If we have concerns about our economy and how that will affect our ministry, we leave it in God's hands, in the hands of the Ancient of Days, who is seated and completely in control. This is his power. This is his authority. We see it in another way in those who are around him. Look, a thousand thousands served him. And ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. Now, one of the things you need to realize about Bible times is they didn't even have a concept of billion. They didn't even have a concept of trillion. We're starting to get a concept of that it's becoming almost passe, right? It used to be a million here, a million there. Soon you're talking about real money. Now it's a billion here, a billion there. And I don't know what it is, but I'm assuming somebody must be working on the next order of magnitude over trillion. Because soon enough, we're going to reach it. In the Bible, they didn't have those kinds of concepts. So the way they would describe an innumerable number, an army of angels, an army of attendants that could never be counted is they would say thousands upon thousands. Have you ever heard of the phrase, there are a myriad of reasons to do this? Myriad is a Greek Bible word that means many thousands. It's what's being described here. So I want you to think about this. There is a court of judgment that has been laid out. Thrones have been laid out, much as we saw in Job chapter 1, when the angels came to the throne room of God for judgment. 
There is a throne room of judgment. And the ancient of days, the Lord God himself in all his brilliance is seated. And in front of him are thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of servants. Now, why would Daniel see this? Why would Daniel think to show us this? Have you thought about the fact that Daniel has been one? One of four. One alone. Over and over again. As he stood for the truth of the living God. He stood with three compatriots as they said, we will not eat this food. He stood by himself to describe the destruction of all world empires to Nebuchadnezzar. He stood by himself and said to King Belshazzar, you have been found wanting and God will judge you this night. He stood by himself against all of the authority of the government and said, I will pray to my God. Think about what an assurance. Think about what a comfort it would be to Daniel to know he is not by himself. He's not part of a little tiny ragtag group. He's not one of the dirty dozen. He's one of the thousands upon thousands upon thousands and thousands who serve the living God. Do you know what else? So are you. If you have put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not alone even when others mock you. If you have trusted upon the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation, you are not by yourself, even though others may say you are a fool. No, you are one of the army of God that stands before the throne room of God before the Ancient of Days. This is the power of God. This should be a great comfort to you when you feel alone. When you feel like you have to stand in your office and no one else will stand with you. When you have to stand in a classroom and raise your hand and say, no, I don't think that really is true. You see, Daniel stood there because he had this vision. Now so do you. It's the ancient days and all of his power. And it's not just that there are servants before him upon thousands and thousands. We see here that the ancient of days is a powerful being in and of himself. He is, as Moses says in Exodus 15, the Lord is a man of war. You see, God is powerful and he fights for his people His throne, actually, if we look at it here, is a chariot. Do you see that in verse 9? His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. You see, the throne of God is not some kind of antiquated, fragile chair, like you would go see if you went into a fancy furniture shop with all kinds of baubles on it. No. The throne of God is a mighty war chariot. Showing his power and his willingness and his ability to fight for his people. Its wheels are wheels of fire, of power, of judgment. Just like we see in Ezekiel chapter 1, these wheels carry with them authority and judgment and power. And you see, God comes forth. He comes forth to battle for his people. This is something that we see throughout the Scriptures, not just here in Daniel. In Psalm chapter 50, for example, 
We read this. In verses 3 and 4, our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before Him is a devouring fire. Around Him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that He may judge His people. You see, the Lord God is not silent. He is not sitting. He is enthroned. And He is enthroned to defend His people. This fire comes out from under His throne and it sweeps away everything that would oppose Him. All will be made right by this fire. These fiery flames pour out and they wipe out all that opposes God. You see, this is the judgment of God. And this judgment, if we think about it, flows from His character. God is the sort of being who has the great wisdom to judge between what is right and what is wrong. Now, that sounds simple, but can you think about the last time when your wisdom failed you to judge between right and wrong? Parents, the time when you tried to figure out which sibling's story was right. And after a bit, you wind up, if you're like me, throwing up your hands and saying, if I can't get a straight story, I guess I'm going to have to punish you both. Because I don't know. I don't have that wisdom. The last time you made a purchase that you regretted, you thought it would be perfect. You thought it would meet your needs. You thought it would help, and not so much. But you see, God is wise all of the time. All of His decisions are perfect. He judges perfectly between right and wrong. But beyond even judging between right and wrong, the fact that He is who He is gives Him the character to choose the right. Perhaps you've had difficulties in this area as well as I have. You know you're supposed to do something. You know you're really not supposed to eat that sixth cookie. But you do anyway. You know it's really not right for you to stay up later than would be appropriate. You'll be tired the next day, but... You do anyway. You see, God not only discerns between the right and the wrong, He always chooses the right. He has the character and holiness to do this. And the last thing we see in this passage is that He has the power to enforce that choice. Have you ever felt helpless? You wanted to help your child get through college. But you couldn't. You wanted to help your wife or your husband get through a difficult time in the neighborhood or at work. But you couldn't. You wanted to ease the pain of someone whom you love. But you can't. You see, God has that power. Nothing is impossible with God. He knows the right. He chooses the right. And He enforces the right all the time. How different this is from human judgment. Isn't it? Many of us are concerned or complain about when things go wrong in our country. When a hurricane hits and response is slow. Or when funds go to the wrong place. Or when funds are stolen. Or when people aren't helped who need to be. And we stand back and we wonder and cry aloud, why can't we fix this? We're the most powerful nation in the history of the world. Why can't we get fresh water to some people in a hurricane? And the answer is, because we 
are not God. We think we are. We think we can do all things at all times, in all ways, but we cannot. But you see, God always, always fulfills His promises. God always is able to make the proper judgment. And He does this in spite of the fact that there is resistance. Look at verse 11. Daniel is drawn back again to this little horn. You remember the little horn with the big mouth? Boasting great things. Mocking God. This is what the greatest nations of the world are today. They stand up and mock God. They say He is dead. They say He is silent. They say He is useless. He is a crutch. God looks upon this horn. And the destruction is incredibly swift. Do you notice that? Look here at verse 12. And as I looked, the beast was killed. That has to be the most anticlimactic battle in the Bible. You know how it's supposed to go, right? If you read an adventure novel or you watch a movie, there's supposed to be this great clash between good and evil. And somehow, some way, we don't know how, at the beginning or in the middle, the main good guy and the main bad guy are to get in some kind of incredible fight. And the main good guy has to be taken to the ropes, almost death. And then finally he somehow pulls it out after an extended battle with many millions of dollars of fireworks and explosions. Look at God's battle. And I looked and the beast was dead. Think about that next time you fear the beast. Think about that next time you think about the power of the state. The way the Bible describes this is it's not even a fight. One commentator puts it this way. It's a lot like Godzilla versus Bambi. There is no battle here. The Lord God is victorious. There is no doubt that he will be victorious. As a matter of fact, the battle is over before it begins. This shouldn't surprise us because the sovereign God is indeed a warrior. He fights for truth and righteousness. He fights for them because they are a part of His character. We see that in Exodus chapter 15. We see it in the famous image of our Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation. If there's another image that is burned into our minds besides that passage of Revelation 1, it is the passage of Revelation 19. With our Lord God, the Lord Jesus, riding at the head of an army on a white horse to defeat the dragon. To defeat the forces of darkness. He is a mighty warrior. The psalmist puts it this way in Psalm 24, verse 8. He says, who is this Lord of glory? He is the one strong and mighty in battle. And I think if there is something perhaps that we have lost a bit of as a church, a universal church, it's the concept of God as a mighty warrior. We don't expect God to slay our enemies. To defeat the sin that besets us. To destroy the wickedness that is around us. But you see, the Bible says this is a part of the story of the Scripture. God vindicating His justice, His truth, and protecting His people. Our Shorter Catechism puts it so well in describing the Lord Jesus Christ. It says that He, as a King, defeats all His and all our enemies. Not some. 
Not just his, but all his and our enemies. This is the Lord God in his judgment. And you see, this judgment is the hope of the believer. Because you see, as we look out and see when the beasts have done their absolute worst. When we have been raked over the coals and run through the ringer. And we are pockmarked with wounds. You see, it is at that point that we still have hope. Because you see, our Lord Jesus tells us in Matthew 10, not to fear those like these beasts that can destroy the body. But rather to fear Him who can destroy the soul. You see, we trust in the living God. And we trust that He is on our side. He will keep every single one of His promises. You see what happens here at the end of verse 10? The court is sitting in judgment. And the books were opened. You see, God doesn't judge capriciously. He doesn't judge randomly. He judges according to His Word and His promise. And you see, that allows you to know the judgment and to know the judgment is just. Children, not so young children, isn't the worst thing in your household when you do the same set of behavior in two days and get two completely different reactions from your parents? You're praised one day, you punish the next. Has that ever happened to you? It might even just be something small. It's enough to drive you crazy. What do you mean? I thought the deal was this. I thought if I did this, that would happen. It's something that children know inherently is unfair. As adults, we shrug our heads and we mumble and we walk away. Children get on the ground and scream, that's not fair. They do externally what we do internally. You see, with God, we never have that. Every promise is written. Every promise is kept. Every promise is able This is how God fulfills His judgment. It is a hope to us to know that His judgment will be the victory of the church. This is the Ancient of Days. This is His judgment that comes forth. But we see a final scene here in verse 13, and that is the Son of Man. The first thing that we are to notice about the Son of Man is that he is not like others. Who is this Son of Man? He comes in with the clouds. Do you notice that? With the clouds of heaven comes one like the Son of Man. And he comes and he is ushered into the presence of the Ancient of Days. But he doesn't bow. He doesn't kneel. And then all peoples, nations, and languages... Serve him. Perhaps your translation uses the word even worship, because that's what this word means. It means serve in the sense of worship. It's almost always used in the context of a man and a deity. Who is this ancient of who is this son of man? Daniel tells us that this son of man is like man, but not exactly a man. This is actually, as I said before, Jesus' favorite title to use. He uses it more than 70 times. 
Perhaps the culmination of that is in Mark chapter 14. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn there. If not, you can just listen. Mark chapter 14. This is after Jesus has been betrayed. He's had the Last Supper. Peter has denied him. He has prayed in the garden. And he is now now before the council. Verse 60 of chapter 14 of Mark. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, Now, you have to understand that in this day and age, there were literally thousands of Christs running around. People claiming to be the Messiah. People claiming to be the man that would free Israel from Rome. The title Messiah was, quite frankly, a dime a dozen. And when asked if he is the Christ, Jesus says, I am and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest looks at him and he says, that's an interesting interpretation of an Old Testament text written in the Maccabean period. No, he tears his clothes. He says, blasphemy. We don't need any more witnesses. Kill him now. Have you ever read that and wondered why the high priest goes ballistic there in the midst of Easter readings? What's, the, what's going on? He says he's this, he sees the Son of Man. He didn't say he's the Christ. There's a lot of other things Jesus has done and said that are worse. Why does the chief priest go so crazy? It's because the chief priest knows Daniel 7. And he knows that Jesus Christ is standing there looking at him and saying, I am God himself. And I will come with judgment. My judgment is just. I am wisdom. I am mercy. I am power. And that will not fit into the worldview of the chief priest. You see, because the chief priest is back there in the shed tinkering, trying to make another beast to beat the Roman beast. He's not studying the Ancient of Days. He's not looking for the Son of Man. He's not looking for the hope of God's judgment. He's looking for a fix. And he cannot take it. He cannot abide it when Jesus says this. You see, because the Son of Man is indeed God. Coming with the clouds is the definition of deity. If you have a concordance, when you go home today, look up the word clouds in the Bible. Upwards of 90% of the time, it will be used in connotation with God. He rides on the clouds. He dwells in the clouds. He comes with the clouds. The clouds are his throne. So much so that in the intertestamental period, one of the names for the Messiah was the cloudy one. You see, Jesus is describing that he is God. And he is doing this for you and for me. You see, Daniel needs to know that Jesus is in control. He needs to know that God will judge because he is suffering. He is hurting. And we need to see the deity of Jesus when we are hurting and suffering. Perhaps the best example of that is in Acts. Do you remember what Stephen sees in the midst of his being stoned for preaching the gospel? 
He sees one like the Son of Man. Standing, not seated. Standing to pronounce judgment. To come off and protect and judge. You see, the apostles needed to see the humanity of Jesus Christ in order to get out of their heads the fact that they thought that the big deal would be to defeat Rome. But we, as we know the cross, need to see and be comforted by the work of Jesus as the Son of Man. And this shows His true power. He is a true man. He is in contrast to all of the beasts. And He is also in contrast to the first Adam. Do you remember what the first Adam was given? He was given dominion and authority and power. Dominion over all the creatures. A dominion He lost. And the Son of Man is given what? He is given dominion and power. He is recovered what was lost by Adam. He has become the true man. He has restored dominion to its proper place because all of the beasts, their whole story is about trying to grab dominion where it doesn't exist. This is the tale of our society. Trying to grab dominion in families. Grab dominion in relationships. Grab dominion in the workplace to tell you what to do and how to do it according to their marching orders. But you see, dominion rests with the Son of Man, with the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does this describe? There are some who say that this passage describes the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ to His throne. There are others who say this describes the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the answer is, I think, yes. It is both. You see, we must avoid the error of saying this is only about the ascension and avoid the error of dominion theology, which says Jesus is on the throne, he reigns, and the church must go and take power everywhere it can in the name of King Jesus. But at the same time, we must avoid the error that says, well, Jesus is coming back and he'll fix everything, so we must go sit in a corner and rock quietly. Because there's no authority. You see, in reality, this is an already and not yet. Jesus is ascended. And what did he say when he ascended in Matthew 28? He said, all power and authority is given unto me. All, all power and authority was given unto him. But it is not visible to us today. His kingdom is still expanding. It is still being built. It is still being manifested. We do not have the lion laying down with the lamb. We do not have justice rolling like waters. We long for that day. But you see, the fact that Jesus is ascended and that He has power gives us assurance that that day will come. And that we as His people will never be defeated. And that we can work forward in the kingdom of God. At the same time, we know the certainty that Jesus is coming again. It is perhaps the most talked about topic in all of the New Testament. The return of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, His kingdom is linked with ours. It will be fully manifested when He returns. The truth is that right now we are in the last days. And the destruction of all of the kingdoms of man are before us. 
Judgment has already been rendered. It is just a matter of being executed. We need not fear what God will do. We simply hope and trust in what we know He will do. This is hope. This is hope for the believer. That the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ will be, as Daniel says, glorious. That it will be universal. There will be no holdouts. And that it will be everlasting. This kingdom will never end. Look with me, if you would, at one verse outside of our passage. Verse 27. The kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom. And all dominions shall obey them. You see, this is the great promise of the Scripture. that All that is Jesus's is ours. Because of who He is. Because of what He has done. That is our faith. That is our hope. That is our longing.